Would you please read with me as I read here in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5, follow along. Here's God's word to us. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and righteous requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Our main idea for this morning, if you're taking notes, is that unexpected divine intervention sets in motion the coming of John the Baptist to point sinners to the Messiah. Again, unexpected divine intervention sets in motion the coming of John the Baptist to point sinners to the Messiah. In our outline, we're going to try to jam-pack a five-point outline in 40 minutes here. So we'll see how we do. But we'll begin with the situation at the announcement there in verse 5. After we look at the situation of the announcement, we'll look at the servants who received the announcement, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Then we'll look at the service performed during the announcements as Zachariah is in the temple. Then the supernatural messenger giving the announcements. And then we'll look real briefly and spend the majority of our time next week looking at the specifics of the announcements. The situation, the servants, the service, the supernatural messenger, and the specifics. So let's begin here with the situation, starting in verse 5. The question here to ask is, well, what is the situation surrounding these events at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke? And to answer that, we have to think about how the Old Testament ends. How does the Old Testament end? Well, it's with the book of Malachi, and it's with a specific prophecy. You see, the next great event on God's redemptive timetable is the arrival of a prophet like Elijah. And until this prophet comes, there is going to be complete silence. Now imagine that. All throughout the Old Testament, God was known for speaking. He spoke to Adam and Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to all the prophets. And the people of God were so used to hearing God's voice through his servants. But between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament, God was completely silent. Now listen, this wasn't silence for a year or five years or a decade. No, decade after decade after decade, prophets began to die off 
and generations began to only hear of the stories of God speaking, but there was no direct revelation. So a hundred years goes by, 200 years goes by, 300 years goes by. Now, as a country, we're only 246 years old. So for the whole existence of the United States, God is not speaking. 400 years go by, no prophets, no revelation, no miracles. Every generation has only heard that God used to speak. But the very last word that God gave in the Old Testament was through that prophet Malachi. And Malachi gave us a promise. So turn with me to Malachi, and we'll begin in chapter 3, because this promise that God would send a prophet like Elijah to be the forerunner of the Messiah is significant. Look there at Malachi 3 and verse 1. God writes through the prophet, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before, what does it say there? Before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. This is beautiful. The Old Testament prophecy that this baby that we're going to read about today was born 2,000 years ago. He is the one that came as the messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah and Savior of the world. And one of the most significant things to note is where did all this take place? It took place in the temple. In the temple. Where is the temple right now? It is not in existence. It was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, what does that mean? It means one of two things, that Jesus is the Messiah and his claim is unquestionable because of all the prophecy that he fulfilled. Or option number two is the Messiah hasn't come yet. And so the temple must be rebuilt and every prophecy regarding the Messiah still has to be fulfilled. And so my question to you is, which one are you going to vote for? Because as we look at the life and teaching of Jesus, conservative scholars have identified that Jesus fulfills at least 300 Old Testament prophecies. You just can't make that up. Others, like Alfred Edersheim, who wrote extensively on the life of Christ, he found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah, and Jesus fulfills them all. Well, look now at Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. Because it's not only Jesus that fulfills these scriptures, but John does as well. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land, devoting it to destruction. And with those words, the Old Testament ends. And what Luke does is he picks up right where the Old Testament left off. You see, when the angel appears to Zechariah, silence is broken. 400 long years are now overturned, and God begins to speak once again. Now, it's with that helpful background that Luke opens up this section. And he begins there in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, what do you need to know about Herod? 
Well, he's called Herod the Great, but he's not called Herod the Great because he himself was great. He was anything but. But if you're talking about his building projects, he has many of them. So take a look at this. This is a little flyover of the temple that was expanded. He had massive building projects, and the chief project was the expansion of the temple. It actually dwarfed Solomon's temple. It occupied one-sixth of the city's area. It was uh, one of the biggest and greatest construction projects ever. Under Herod, the temple court measured 1,550 feet by 1,000 feet. That's about 35 acres. Not only that, but its foundational walls were constructed of these gigantic stones. When Jess and I were there, I was marveling how in the world did they get these stones on top of one another? Just to give you an idea of how big these stones are, the largest one they found was 45 feet long. It was 11.5 feet high, and it was 12 feet thick. And Jesus says, not one stone will lay on the other. And exactly as he said, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. But the scale and architectural magnificence of his public building projects was impressive. But I think that was all that was impressive when we talk about Herod. Because Herod was morally corrupt. You remember, he's the one that ordered the execution of all the male babies in the village in Bethlehem, two years of age and younger. Probably something like 20 to 25 infants were killed. Very reminiscent of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's cruelty. That should be enough to tell you how wicked this guy was, but let me tell you a little bit more. He had 10 wives, about a dozen children. He began to suspect that one of his wives and her family were trying to usurp him and overthrow him. And so what did he do? Well, he goes and has her brother killed and then her grandfather killed. Later, he suspected her of infidelity. And so what did he do? He went and killed his own wife. In 4 BC, just five days before his death, he had his favorite son executed. Again, for fear that someone would overtake him. Herod was a sick man. And just to give you another picture, the the last act of sinful selfishness and cruelty is he said, well, when I die, no one's going to mourn me. So he got his soldiers to gather up all the leading men and to put them in a coliseum. And when he breathed his last breath, he wanted his soldiers to kill all those men so that people would mourn. He didn't care that they were going to mourn for him. He just wanted people to be sad on the day that he died. This is the kind of sick, demented man that we read about in the annals of history. Herod was not so great. Now, why do I take the time to kind of set the stage? Because what you need to understand is that for God's people, this was not the best of times. In fact, this was the worst of times. Look with me at Luke chapter 1 and verse 76. We read Zechariah's prophecy of his own son. And starting there in verse 76, we read this. And you, child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to make ready his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And look at this, I love this. Which, with which, the sunrise from on high will visit us 
to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to direct our feet into the way of peace. What a beautiful description. The sunrise from on high will visit us. Question to you, when does the sunrise come up? You say after the darkness. I was reminded, I actually watched the preview of this morning on YouTube. Forgive me here for geeking out for just a second, but do you remember Gandalf in Twin, uh, the Two Towers? Where he tells Aragorn, he says, look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day at dawn, look to the east. And there's this huge battle going on and it looks like they're going to be defeated and the orcs and the evil and the darkness. And then all of a sudden they lift up their eyes and there's Gandalf with a light. But we're not talking about wizards. We're talking about a baby. Look to the light. The sun, the sunrise is coming. There is darkness. There is an evil king. There is wickedness. There is sin. There is death. But God promised that at the right time, he would send the forerunner and the Messiah to bring salvation. This was a dark time in Israel because not only do you not have a prophet and the voice of God, there's no Ark of the Covenant, there's no glory cloud. So who is going to come and provide hope? Well, here it is in Luke chapter 1. God in his perfect and gracious timing is about to come and turn the lights on. Daytime is about to dawn. The forerunner is bursting onto the scene. So Luke transitions with a stark contrast. He talks about this proud, godless king to set the stage, and then he turns his attention to the humble, godly priest. Look there in verse 5. It's in the days of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, that there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So from the situation now to the servants, Zachariah and Elizabeth. Oh, what a sweet, sweet couple. Zachariah, very familiar name. In fact, 31 different people are named Zachariah in the Bible. There's even a book of the Bible called Zachariah. But listen to this. His name means Yahweh remembers. Isn't that beautiful? Yahweh remembers what he promises to do. The etymology of Elizabeth's name is a little bit harder to pinpoint, but it's something like this. My God is an oath. You say, well, what does that mean? It just means that God is a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. You put this couple together and you think about what their name means, that God is absolutely reliable, that he is trustworthy, that he's dependable. Yahweh remembers his covenant. That's what Luke is getting at here by identifying just their names. And then add to that their son John's name. John means Yahweh is or has been gracious. And so right from the get-go, Luke opens up with his great news by just mentioning their names. God remembers his covenant. Once again, he's going to prove himself gracious. And he does that by fulfilling the promise that he said long ago to send a forerunner. Now, what else can we say about this godly couple, these servants of the Lord? Well, they come from a very 
rich priestly heritage. Okay, the priests in Israel, they obviously had a great privilege to be the mediator between God and, and men at the time. They were involved with the worship and the service in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. But it was a sacred responsibility and all the details are outlined for you in Leviticus. So you can go home and read that today. I grew up in a very Catholic environment in East Los Angeles. My understanding of priests was very, very faulty. I didn't understand what it meant to be a biblical priest. But one thing that I couldn't get over was the idea that you can't marry a woman. That doesn't sound very fun. I went to a Catholic school. This just annoyed me. I thought, that Bible's not very cool. That is prohibiting you from marrying a woman. Well, is that what the Bible says? The Bible actually encourages priests to get married. Leviticus chapter 21. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman, or one who is not profaned by harlotry. These he may not take, but rather he shall take a virgin of his own people as a wife so that he will not profane his seed among his people. For I am Yahweh who makes him holy. And so Zechariah not only marries a godly girl, but he marries a woman who is a descendant of Levi and of Aaron. And what that means for us is two things, really, is that Zechariah took his priesthood very seriously. And secondly, it means that Elizabeth, his wife, understood what it meant to give your life in service to the Lord. Because all of Elizabeth's family tree, her brothers, her dad, her granddad, her cousins, her uncle, all of them would have been priests. But you know what's interesting is here you have this godly couple, this priest, they seem faithful, but you know what the problem is? She's barren. She's not, she's, she can't conceive, and she's in her old age. Now, typically, the attitude toward those who couldn't have babies was not favorable. They thought that maybe God was displeased, and what we'll see is that was definitely not the case. You look at the couple's assessment there in verse 6. And this isn't just Luke's assessment of them. This is God's assessment of this godly couple. Look what it says in verse 6. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and righteous requirements of the Lord. And what this verse does is it gives us two very important spiritual truths. First of all, they both enjoyed what we call imputed righteousness. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it says they were both righteous in the sight of God. That doesn't mean that they were born righteous. That doesn't mean that they were inherently righteous. What this is communicating to us is that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous the way that only someone could be righteous, and that is by faith. They were righteous by faith, both this brother and sister knew and believed the Old Testament scriptures. They understood the impact of sin, that sin brings forth death. They also understood that they themselves could not be good enough to get to heaven, to have a relationship with God. And so they embraced the future work of the Messiah. And you say, well, wait a second, Dom, you're going a little too fast here. This is a New Testament truth. Did they truly understand that? That's a good question. Why don't you look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 67? After John's birth, Zechariah makes this prophecy. Again, we, we looked at this a little earlier, but let's expand on it. 
It says, his father, Zechariah, verse 67, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old. Now skip down there to verse 76. It says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to make ready his ways to give to his people, listen to this, the knowledge of salvation. How? By the forgiveness of their sins. This prophecy about his own son is about the prophecy to be fulfilled, the one who is going to make way for a Messiah that's going to die, that's going to be a propitiation for the sins of the world, that's going to fulfill all of the covenant promises going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. You see, I think Zechariah got it. I think his wife Elizabeth got it. They weren't inherently righteous. The second thing, though, it's not just the imputed righteousness as they're putting their hope and trust in a Messiah yet to be born, but it says here in verse 6, look there, they're walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, we get confused when we read this because we think, what does this mean? Is Is this sinlessness? Are they perfect people? We can't live up to that standard. And the answer to that is they were not perfect, but they patterned their life after the scriptures. They were obedient and submissive to God's word so that when they sinned against one another and they did sin against one another, they actually confessed their sin and they forgave one another. And oftentimes they sought reconciliation and if need be, they would provide for one another restitution. So again, blamelessness doesn't mean perfect, but they pursued obedience, and this was the pattern of their life. Now, this is significant. Again, you say, why? Because how in the world could they be blameless and godly and yet be barren? Remember, pregnancy during this time was one of the greatest blessings to come to a family. Children are a what? Blessing from the Lord. And so what is this communicating? Is God displeased with this couple? You know, in the Old Testament, when a woman finally became pregnant, they would thank the Lord, and they would usually say something like this, the Lord has taken away my reproach. Look there at Luke chapter 1 and verse 25. Elizabeth says something similar when she does conceive. It says, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach disgrace among men. You see, being barren was a stigma, and it was often viewed as a sign of God's disapproval. And here's just a point of application for us, because we see certain things, and we make judgments according to our logic. But there's a word here that says, these two were blameless and upright in the sight of the Lord. They're God-fearing people, faith-filled people, And so for you this morning, do you have this kind of reputation? Could this be said of you, that you are God-fearing, that you are upright, that you are righteous, that you are walking blamelessly? We all know that you're not perfect, but are you pursuing Christ 
growing in faith, growing in obedience, growing in submission, growing in sanctification. What a model couple for us. So listen, Luke, he's just whetting our appetite in these first couple verses. We've seen a wicked, heartless tyrant, very reminiscent of Pharaoh. We've seen a godly priest, a barren wife, past the age of giving birth. Something very interesting is happening here. And all of these details matter in the story because what matters most is not even the birth of John, but what matters most is that Jesus is gonna be center stage. But before Luke gets to that, he continues to set up the scene. And so now we turn away uh, from the situation to the servants and now to the service performed. Look there in verse eight. It says this, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. Now, let me show you here. This is just a model of the temple. I'll never forget this model because Jess and I were there when we got a phone call from New York one of our fellow classmates, his dad was next across the street from the, t- the two towers. We were there when September 11th happened, looking at this very model and taking notes. But, but here is the model of the temple. And for a priest, you have to realize this. This is the greatest honor that a priest can have. You know, typically the priests are serving in their community and the countrysides and the towns but, but very rarely would a priest have an opportunity to go to the temple and especially to be invited to light the altar of incense. There are thousands of priests during this time, and they didn't all get to go to Jerusalem and serve in this way. And so this, again, is a huge deal. God's timetable is beautiful. And so he's selected by the casting of lots. We see God's hand in all this. He's there on this particular day. God is orchestrating all this perfectly. Zechariah's job is to burn incense for the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice, the offering of incense. You say, well, what is that? Well, it just symbolized the sacrifices were being offered up to God. So, so the smoke would rise up and it would be as to say, these are the prayers of God's people going up into the nostrils of the Lord and he would be pleased with the sacrifices coming up to him. And this is what we read in Luke, that as he is inside and he's doing his service, there are people outside, and we can put the next picture up here just to give you a preview of all the people that are gathered. And Zechariah's inside, and they're outside, and they're all collectively praying. And this leads to the supernatural messenger and the announcement Because while this is going on, verse 10 says, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense offering and an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Now first, I just want you to notice the the suddenness of this appearing. When you're a priest performing this duty, you're by yourself in there. You're not expecting someone just to show up. So you're in there, you're doing your work, and then all of a sudden, someone is standing right next to you. Yesterday, the kids were not at home. I thought Jess had left. And the reason why I thought that is because I kept calling for her and she didn't answer me. So she's in the back room, 
I went and I checked. I looked at the door. The door was locked. I looked in every room. She wasn't there. And so I walk into the back room, and I open the door, and she's standing right there. And it almost gave me a heart attack. <laughs> Zachariah is here doing his priestly service, and all of a sudden, an angel appears. But this isn't just any old angel. Look down at verse 19. It says, The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands before God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. You see, of all of the angels, of all of the myriads and myriads of angels, there's only two that are named, Michael, the archangel, the one who's usually sent to display power and authority and protection, and the other angel that's named is the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel is the supreme messenger sent from heaven. He stands in the presence of God, and he delivers God's word. So if a prophet is one who delivers God's word, the angel Gabriel is like the prophet of prophets. Because every time he is sent to deliver a message, it is earth-shattering news. You see, hundreds of years earlier, the angel Gabriel appeared to a brother named Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. And he gave this 70 weeks prophecy about the Messiah that is to come. And he announced that Israel's exile would last 400 years. But now, as Luke records that the time has come, the Messiah is on his way. Secondly, I just want you to notice the sight of the appearing because it's interesting to me that he's standing right to the altar of incense. And in this way, I think, and there, there's a good, that's not actually him, I didn't take that, but it's a, it's a depiction of him standing next to the Holy of Holies and the prayers are going up and as the prayers are going up, it's like, boom, here's your answer. Here's your answer. Gabriel has been sent with a message. And so we look at the situation. All this took place during the days of Herod the king. God's people are in the land, but really they're under bondage, under Roman rule. We saw the contrast between the sinister king and the servant saints, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is performing this sacred service, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to burn incense to the Lord when all of a sudden he's visited by a supernatural messenger, Gabriel. And now the question is, well, what's the news that he's come to bring? Now, it's been silent for 400 years. What does Gabriel have to say? Well, let's look at the specifics there in verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Watch this, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, he begins the way angels always begin because it was absolutely terrifying. And so he begins, don't be afraid, do not fear, the angel said this to Abraham, to Moses, to Joshua, to Isaiah, to so many others. And why would you have to say that? Because it was scary. But Gabriel, interestingly, he's not asked a certain question. You know, I think sometimes people think, oh, Gabriel's here. 
Uh, let, let me ask him some specific questions to clarify for our covenantal brothers, you know, the timing of everything, or our dispensational brothers, how they got everything wrong. He, he, he's not interested in knowing those things. No, he is in complete terror. It says there, verse 12, Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel and fear fell upon him. Now, the reason why fear fell upon him is, yes, because an angel is terrifying. But the reason why we look at this and say this is significant is because anytime an angel appears, something significant is about to happen. And so look at verse 13. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And I would just say, when I read that, I thought, that's a little ambiguous. What prayer has been heard? Remember the context here. People are all gathered. They're outside. This is a corporate time of prayer. And you say, well, what are they praying about? Well, during this time, they would have been praying, God, we have been under bondage for so long, all the way back to Egypt and then Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Medo-Persia, and now Rome. When is it going to stop? When is the Messiah going to come? Lord, please save us, rescue us, deliver us. This is the prayer of the people. And God says, your prayer has been heard. But not the way that you think. The interesting thing here is that when Gabriel answers this prayer, it's very specific to him. Look what it says in the text. Your prayer has been heard. So while there's this corporate element, the individual is not overlooked. And that's the beauty of Luke's gospel. As we go through the gospel of Luke, salvation is for everyone. Everyone who would come. Everyone. But salvation is for you personally. And we see this over and over again. The, the lost need to get saved, but you need to get saved. Look at what Gabriel says. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son very personally. Look at verse 14. And you, singular, will have joy and gladness, and many others will rejoice at his birth. For this poor couple. You know, if you die, if the husband dies and Elizabeth is a widow, who's going to take care of her? Usually it's the son. There is no son here. So in a very sweet, personal way, Gabriel delivers the news that turns their grief into gladness, their sorrow into joy. And this becomes the theme throughout the gospel of Luke. Because we see joy and joy and joy. Christ breaks into the world and there is joy. Zachariah and Elizabeth experience great joy. John in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy when Mary comes with the baby Jesus. The angels announce to the shepherds in the field, I bring you good news of great joy. And then just real quickly, flip all the way to the end of the Gospel of Luke. Look at chapter 24 and verse 52. And they, after worshiping him, that is the risen Christ, they returned to Jerusalem, and you finish the sentence, with 
great joy. Look, I can't emphasize how important this is in our understanding because this whole month you're going to hear happy holidays, season's greetings, and every Christmas moniker that you hear. Why? Is it because of Santa Claus? We celebrate this time of year because the God of the universe came into the world. Because God fulfilled his promise from thousands of years ago. Because God never breaks a promise that everything he says comes to pass. He orchestrates everything perfectly. And it doesn't matter what corrupt leader is in charge. He will send the right person at the right time to give the right message to provide the hope that we all need. And that is salvation from sin. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are thankful that you are a covenant-keeping God and that this is the message, Lord, that grace has triumphed. I think of that last passage in the Old Testament and how it ends with a curse, that the Old Testament closes with a curse, that there will be destruction But yet John, even his name, Yahweh, is gracious. Oh, how thankful we are for your great grace that you have overcome the curse. There's always been a solution, but it came in the form of a baby 2,000 years ago. And so we think of the Apostle John who says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. Oh, we are thankful, God, that you have reversed the curse, that you've given us a new hope. And even as we turn to the book of Revelation and we read that there will no longer be any curse and that the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and all of his servants will serve him. And even the last words of the scriptures, we read the grace of our Lord, Jesus Christ, be with you all. Oh, Father, we're so thankful for John the Baptist, his ministry, his message, his life, his character. And we're thankful for that great news that he delivered to us when he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's only because of your faithfulness, Jesus, that we can have salvation. And we pray now as we have an opportunity to hear how you work in the lives of to save people from their sin, that you would be honored at the waters of baptism. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.